Hey, it's Mark. It was 20 years ago this week that esteemed leaders from around the medical marketing industry first gathered here in New York City to celebrate gold and silver winners at the inaugural MMM Awards. Since then, this spectacular awards gala has become a fixture and a must-attend event for many people on the annual circuit. At its core, the program recognizes creativity and effectiveness in pharmaceutical marketing and advertising, as well as the top people and agencies behind the work. While staying true to that mission over the past two decades, as industry pros have adapted to the changing preferences of patients and physicians, the awards have adapted right along with them. Judging has gone from a digital live hybrid that required jurors and moderators to convene in person over coffee and sandwiches in June to a 100% virtual affair, having migrated to Zoom during the pandemic. The program's scope has also blossomed from about a half dozen categories back in the day to more than 50 today. And those are just two of the ways this stalwart program has evolved. This week on the podcast, pharma marketing and jury vet Ryan Billings and I offer a preview of this year's ceremony for the MMNM Awards and a look back on its storied history. And Lesha's here with a health policy update. Hey, Lesha. Hey, Mark. Today, I'll discuss a significant move on the Medicare drug pricing negotiation front. All pharma companies that manufacture the 10 drugs chosen have decided to participate in the program. And Jack, what else is trending in the healthcare world this week? This week, we're talking about the death of Tim Wakefield due to brain cancer, a TikTok influencer who wants to help Gen Z spot harmful health trends, and Tom Hanks saying a dental plan video used an AI version of him without permission. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hey, this is Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large for MMM, and as is the eve of the MMM Awards ceremony here in NYC, we're dedicating this week's interview segment to bringing you a special awards preview. And thanks to my special guest, this preview promises to be equal parts retrospective as well. I'm, of course, chatting with longtime MMM juror and pharma marketing veteran, Ryan Billings. Hey, Ryan, and welcome to the MMM Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We were just chatting offline, and I can't believe we haven't had you uh, on the podcast yet. So it's a, a privilege and an honor to welcome you. Uh, you've worked at a number of companies, GSK, AMAG, Merck, AstraZeneca. You're now Executive Director, Head of Commercial Innovation at Organon. Um, and you've also been a juror for a long time. Uh, I just thought we'd kick things off uh, getting your reflections on the ceremony itself. Uh, you've attended, of course, from the, from the client side over these many years. Um, you've been up for awards. What's it like, kind of shifting into your juror mindset, um, and how do you how do you go about that? Yeah. So honestly, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm I've been in this industry for you know seventeen ish years, and um, have seen like the the environment evolve a lot. You know. It was only, what, 10 years ago that pharma even started to touch social. So we've come a long way. Um, so what I'm trying to say is, you know, I spend every day um, working on these campaigns, partnering with these agencies. Um, I've often been, you know, part of teams or part of campaigns that are up for awards. So switching that hat um, from you know, the marketer and the innovator who's trying to win the awards to then having to put on the hat of, you know, judging and seeing what other companies are doing, what what agencies are doing. Um, it's fun because I, I get to uh, 
assess what's going on outside of, you know, what I've been working on and what my team has been working on. So it can be difficult to separate, you know, my own um, kind of, you know, personal um, opinions or, you know, uh, you know, the things that we're working on, like, how does it compare? So that can be hard to separate, um, but it's something necessary to do. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of fun to, to go through this process. Yeah, you, that's probably, you know, also one of the primary benefits I've heard for people uh, that volunteer for the jury is that they get to see a lot of competitive work. Um, obviously, um, you know, there's a um, recusal process, you know, if something that the person exactly. himself or herself has worked on. Uh, but, um, you know, in terms of judging day itself, you know, I, I do recall the days when we used to meet a tavern on the green. I'm sorry for the, uh, for the ceremony, you know, we used to meet on Tavern on the Green and then it switched to Cipriani's and, uh, you're side by side in, in that room, uh, you know, as you mentioned, sometimes, uh, you know, being on, on the client side with agencies you've worked with or competitors, you know, um, mm-hmm. a, across the aisle, um, you know, what's that, what's that dynamic like kind of rubbing elbows with, uh, those that you're having to be going up against, I, I guess you can't speak from the agency yeah. side, but you're know, just from the client side. Right. It's nice. I think that um, I was talking to someone recently. So, you know, just a a tiny bit of background about me and my role. So at Organon, I've spent the last year and um, three months or so building out a brand new commercial innovation function. And I recently connected with someone from another organization who had built out a similar team and, um, you know, not a competitor. So, you know, had made sure that, you know, the right firewalls are in place and that we weren't revealing anything, you know, proprietary, that kind of thing. But we both just walked away thinking like, we should do this more often. Like we should be reaching out to each other more often. There are, there are forums for that, you know, through like different ad boards, through like our tech platform partners, like Google health. Um, they have a great ad board where they come together quarterly. Um, I know meta has a similar one. So also conferences. I was just yesterday, I was at a Reuters conference around HCP engagement, um, where I talked about partnerships and like so many of the folks I spoke to were from other companies and they were like, Hey, I'm, I'm building out a similar, you know, pillar around partnerships. Like, how did you get around this MLR, you know, stipulation, that kind of thing. So there are other forums to do it. So it's not too unfamiliar. Um, but it is cool. It is fun to sit here and and kind of like, you know, just be um, in the room working as a team with sometimes competitors. And actually this year, um, the two other judges were folks from other manufacturers. And what was interesting to me is like for most of the categories, we were in like complete agreement. But I remember there were a couple instances where we had ranked some of the agencies completely differently and we had to really debate. So it just kind of shows like you're at different places, you're working on different things and you have different, different opinions. And, um, that can be a, for me, it's fun. I like, I like a good debate. 
yes, debate is what it's all about. You know, public debate, private private scoring, right? Yes. And uh, so, yes. and you mentioned the you know, jury jury day, judging day. That also has mm-hmm. you know changed over the years. I remember we used to meet at the Warwick Hotel. You remember that right up on 65th Street, um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then that switched over to convene at Grand Central. And then, of course, during the pandemic, we went virtual, uh, which is a whole dynamic uh, in and of itself, right? Do, do you feel like that's kind of improved the process? I kind of feel like from our point of view, we kind of noticed that jurors really recommitted themselves to really, you know, deliberate um, pouring, deliberately pouring over the work. Not that they didn't do that before, but there seemed to be more distractions yeah. before where you had to catch a cab, you had to catch a flight, that kind of thing. Oh, 100%. I mean, I used to, I spent most of my adult life and my career in Philadelphia. So it was easy to pop up to New York, but you're still, you know, walking away from a day or two of, you know, the the work that you're doing. Um, So that is nice. Um, I will say, so I've I've done the in-person thing, I think once. Um, I now live in North Carolina, uh, moved down here during the pandemic. I think a lot of people fled the cities, right? And I'm one of those people. um, And I've been able to remain working remote um, for a company based in Philadelphia. Um, But I remember judging the first time during the pandemic, um, you know, I'd say at a macro level, we were still all figuring it out. I think it was like the July timeframe, if I'm not mistaken. So that was only a few months after we had gone completely virtual, right? So like, it was definitely not as smooth as it was this year, I will say. But again, at a macro level, like we were trying to figure out how to work in a virtual setting in general, let alone how do you judge, not only judge, but how do you hold a huge award ceremony like this. So, you know, talk about like rapid transformation, you know, this was one area like events, right? Not only the the actual event itself, but like I said, the judging process. So it was sure in retrospect, cool to be a part of that, but also a little stressful um, <laughs> because I didn't know how it would work. I will say this year was like very smooth. There were like very clear instructions on like, here's your categories, here's what you need to go through. Um, and then here's the day of instructions and here's how we're gonna, you know, submit your scores and all of that. Um, it was very seamless this year. Um, but I think y'all did the best you could uh, during that first year in 2020, so. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, I mean, we were changing right along with the industry exactly. itself, you know, yeah. and going, going virtual. Um, and uh, testament to the teams, I mean, the live uh, judging day always seemed to go well. Um, the, the team handled, you know, um, the whittling down of hundreds of entries into a top 10, you know, in each category and the tiebreakers and all those things and the recusals. And then, you know, the virtual element just kind of added another layer of, of digital complexity to, mm-hmm. to it all. Um, and it's, it's taken, you know, a year or two to work out the kinks, but I'm glad to hear from, from the juror's perspective, uh, that it was so, so seamless. Why don't we just, uh, shift over, jete over, if you will, to trends in the work. I'd uh, love to get your take on how, uh, the categories have evolved, you know, as, as we like to say, as the as the 
marketing that marketers do changes, you know, with technology, um, the, the, um, and AI, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, the categories have to change with it to reflect the nature of the work. Um, and that's been interesting to watch. And I'm sure from your perspective, as somebody involved in leading innovation, um, how has it been, you know, kind of adapting the work on the client side and with the agencies that you, uh, engage with? Yeah, for me, I mean, this is what I do, right? Like, I love change. Um, I'm constantly like looking for what's what's the next big thing. How should we be kind of thinking about how to leapfrog? Uh, we do a lot of catching up and leapfrogging. I will say in our industry, and that's okay. Um, but you know, there's a few things that impact how we engage with customers and patients, and that's changes in technology which are rapidly you know, accelerating as we know, and changes in customer expectations, which are shaped by industries outside of healthcare for the most part, right? Like we want our on-demand content. We wanna order our groceries and have them delivered at our door. We wanna order things by, from Amazon and have it like same day on our doorstep. We want to order our coffee ahead and just pick it up. Um, We want chat concierge services and customer service, like whether it's a human or a chat bot, we want it to feel human. We want it to feel instant. We want to get the answers we need when we want them, right? So there's that those changes in customer expectations. There's also just the larger environment, like things happening politically or economically, things like that. I could go on and on about like all the different reasons why we have to adapt, but the, the, the long and short of it is that we do have to adapt every year and every year looks different. And I was reflecting earlier. So the first time that I attended the MMNM awards was, um, it was either 2014 or 2015. And it was one of the first years that there was a category around social media and, That was like around the time when pharma was trying to figure out how, how do we even touch social, right? Um, Draft guidance, I don't think had come out from the FDA on social until 2014. Um, And that was when it was like, okay, we have to figure this out because we now have some guidance, right? We can't avoid it. Fast forward just nine years later, social is a foundational part of our Um, customer engagement plans, our marketing plans. Um, We have figured out the AE monitoring conundrum. Um, You know, we can use social analytics um, in many, many ways and pull out like real insights very quickly. We can activate influencers, both HCP and patient. Um, We can actually attribute script lift to social. We can put copays and copay cards and coupons directly on social, like, My point being, we have come such a long way. There are platforms today that are the most used, like TikTok, that did not exist just a few years ago. So, um, yeah, just I remember that first night I was uh, part of a team at AstraZeneca that was up for best use of social media. Um, It was for uh, a branded branded community, which at the time was very, like, it was not being done. So today, like, everyone's got a branded page, right? At least for for paid. But I was looking at, you know, the different categories this year and you don't just have best use of social media. You have social media for paid. 
you have social media for organic, you have use of influencer marketing, you know, and then there's just some more tangential categories kind of um, coming off of that is it's not just like one all encompassing use of social. So that's just one example of how things have evolved and why I do think the influencer marketing thing, if, if I was a betting man, I would say in the next couple of years, we'll see that start to break off because influence, there's all different kinds of influencers, right? And I think um, we're getting very, we've gotten very good at activating patient influencers. There's a lot of organizations out there, advocacy groups that make it very easy to compliantly partner with, you know, real patients, that kind of thing. Um, but from an HCP perspective, we're starting to see companies really figure that out. Um, it's not easy to do, but it is possible. So I would say, I think that you're going to probably switch up how you um, categorize the influencer marketing piece in the future. That's a really good uh, point. And, you know, I think uh, you're, you're right. We probably do need to consider adding one for digital key opinion leader. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a really good uh, idea. And that's another fun part of the awards is, as you say, kind of like looking at how uh, marketing is shifting and evolving and, and making sure that the categories stay current. Speaking of that, you know, I, I, from my own perspective, you know, being uh, in the jury room, more than 10 times over the years. I've seen the addition of uh, a number of categories that have become pretty significant, like health equity and social awareness campaign, mm -hmm. health tech innovation, obviously, you know, with uh, innovation becoming a big part of uh, what marketers uh, are, are doing kind of tangentially in some cases to the core work, which some might say is branded and unbranded uh, pharma work um, and uh, OTC and wellness, you know, coming more to the fore. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, immersive technology has been uh, on there for a while. That's still there. Use of immersive technology, clinical trial research, marketing becoming a bigger area. And uh, we've, you know, finally a few years ago kind of also expanded the footprint to recognize use of hospital or healthcare services marketing. Uh, and, uh, you know, so really been fun to see how the awards have, uh, have morphed over the years to, to keep right. pace. Yeah, and like showing it. TV, like that wasn't wasn't even a phrase a few years ago. Yeah. So right, definitely connected TV. Yep, really a good. really good job of uh, evolving with with the industry and with you know the larger environment. So yeah, thank you. And uh, you know, up for awards this year, as you've, I'm sure people have caught the uh, the short list that that came out over the summer. Um, obviously, awards in all these categories. Um, Gold and silvers will be announced mm -hmm. um, at the ceremony uh, coming up uh, Thursday evening mm -hmm. um, at uh, Cipriani Wall Street, and uh, as well as the People uh, and, and uh, Team and Agency of the Year Awards, uh, as well as Best of Show and, and the Platinum uh, winners, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've got that to look forward to. You know, this being the 20th anniversary year, um, just kind of wanted to close out this interview, uh, Ryan, with, uh, you know, first of all, you know, thanking you for your uh, many years of, of loyal service on the on the jury and being right there with us and helping us, you know, keep up. Uh, but I want to give you the last word here and asking you, you know, to kind of, you know, any other reflections that you might have, either your experience as a juror this year, which you kind of spoke to earlier, but anything uh, you wanted to talk about and leave our listeners with? Yeah, no, first of all, I, I just want to say thank you. It's such an honor to be, you know, considered um, a thought leader in the industry. And I just, I absolutely love this industry. Like, like I said, I was at um, an event yesterday and it's just like, 
seeing familiar faces. I mean, I'm an extrovert. Like I, I've been in, in this industry for a long time and just to see people in person again, like it's just so awesome. Nothing, nothing replaces that. Um, so, you know, I'm so happy that even the, the event night itself is back to being in person. I know, I know it was the last couple of years as well. So um, it's just so great. So thank you. But yeah, no, I'm just so excited to see how things evolve over the next 20 years, right? So I swear I wouldn't mention AI, but like, could that be a category moving forward? I think every conference I've been to this fall has been centered around AI and it'll be really interesting to see like, okay, yeah, we we get like theoretically how we should be using AI, but tangibly how is that going to be pulled through um so that's something i'm looking forward to seeing you know in the future um and i would just say like for my personal experience this year i think this was, was the best experience i've had i was on a very diverse panel um which i think was important and i think that you all try to do a good job of you know making sure that diversity is represented and it was really really um it, it, it really made my heart happy to see um, in a lot of the submissions and a lot of the videos um, that focus from some of the, the agencies and the teams on things like DEI and like real examples of what they're doing, how they're giving back, you know, from a corporate social responsibility standpoint. I think that, you know, we we tend to get caught up in the work and like being the first to do something or being the most innovative. But at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, this is such an emotional and empathetic industry. And at its core, we should be bringing it back to um, not only, you know, what's best for patients and um, how to better support our customers who are in turn treating our patients. Right. But but also just, again, giving back and, and doing good work and making the world a better place. So that was just really awesome to, to see that, you know, as an industry, we're really doing that. Um, and I hope to see that continue. Yes, yeah, great, great remarks. And um, you know, a couple of points there that I wanted to just follow up on really quickly. I mean, that's the that's the one aspect, the magical aspect um, of having the privilege of, you know, showcasing all this great work is that the work that, that you as pharma marketers are doing um, is actually helping, you know, patients to either deal with their disease more easily or in some cases, um, you know, either, you know, get relief or, or cure their get cure for their disease. Yeah. Uh, so it's it just, it's more than, than in basic marketing at the end of the day. And so, it's really, um, you know, it makes it what we do special, you know, in terms of working hand in hand uh, with with the farm industry on these awards. Um, and, you know, in terms of the DEI and aspect, thank you so much for bringing that up as well. I mean, I recall just uh, one f final reflection back in 2020, um, you know, when, um, you know, the murder of George Floyd, you know, was still kind of fresh on everyone's mind. And, and speaking with our chair of judges at that time, Elaine Gamble, um, about, you know, how the judges were really you know, grappling, you know, with uh, the industry, which was at that time starting to t tackle more of these um, equity uh, types of issues. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the composition of the of the jury had not quite caught up yet. Um, and so, um, you know, and we were kind of having to, you know, spend an extra moment kind of tell people your lived experience might not come to bear on this work yet. Uh, so just kind of, you know, keep that in mind and give it an extra 
um, second or two of reflection, you know, and try try to think outside the box a little yeah. bit. Uh, but now it's, it's 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 heartening also for from my perspective to hear that um, you know the composition of the jury is is caught up, starting to catch up. We have more work to do, uh, but but certainly things are on the upswing. I totally agree with you. Yeah, great, great. Okay, well, well, Ryan, it's really really been an honor and a privilege uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much, and we'll see you Thursday night. Thank you. I'll see you there. Looking forward to it. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. All companies that manufacture the 10 drugs for Medicare's new price negotiation program have chosen to participate, the White House announced this week. Medicare's negotiation power was a provision included in the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year, which signaled a historic move toward drug pricing regulation. In August, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services unveiled the list of the first 10 drugs that would be subject to price negotiations starting in 2026. Those drugs include Eliquis, manufactured by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Bowringer Ingelheim's Jardians, Johnson & Johnson's Zarelto, and Merck's Genuvia. If the drug makers didn't agree to the program, they would have had to pay a significant excise tax or pull their drugs from the Medicare market altogether. A Bristol-Myers Squibb spokesperson told CNBC Weekly that, quote, we have no choice other than to sign the agreement and that it was not a real choice. In a video posted to his Twitter, President Joe Biden touted the move as a step forward in the negotiating process. So now today I can announce that the manufacturers of 10 drugs are coming to the negotiating table to lower prices. We're taking steps to participate in the negotiation program so we can give seniors the best possible deal. This fall, CMS will hold a meeting with the drug makers to discuss their data submissions. And the federal government will also hold patient-focused listening sessions for each drug. Those sessions will include input from patients, caregivers, and consumer organizations. In February next year, CMS will release its initial offer of a maximum fair price for each of the drugs, with final prices expected to be set by next September. In a statement, CMS Administrator Chiquita Brooks-Lashur said Medicare will, quote, negotiate in good faith consistent with the requirements of the law on behalf of people with Medicare. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at mm and And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. We start today with the tragic news of Boston Red Sox Hall of Famer Tim Wakefield's death from brain cancer over the weekend. Late last week, his former teammate Kurt Schilling revealed on his podcast that Wakefield was battling an aggressive form of brain cancer, had undergone surgery, and that the situation was, quote, incredibly serious. At issue was the fact that Wakefield had not publicly disclosed his cancer battle, and there was no indication that Schilling had permission to reveal Wakefield's diagnosis. The blowback to Schilling's revelation was swift and fierce online, with Catherine Veritek, the wife of former Red Sox catcher Jason Veritek, posting on X, formerly known as Twitter, fuck you, Kurt Schilling, that wasn't your place. Even the Red Sox had to step in and issue a statement on behalf of Wakefield and his family on Thursday, saying, quote, we are aware of the statements and inquiries about the health of Tim and Stacy Wakefield. Unfortunately, this information has been shared publicly without their permission. Their health is a deeply personal matter they intended to keep private as they navigate treatment and work to tackle this disease. Tim and Stacy are appreciative of the support and love that has always been extended to them and respectfully ask for privacy at this time. 
Ultimately, Wakefield passed away on Sunday at the age of 57. He leaves behind his wife, Stacy, and two kids. And I can speak here as somebody who is a fan of the Boston Red Sox that was around family members this weekend while the story was coming out. And I can share in the sentiments that were expressed by Catherine Veritek about Kurt Schilling. And, you know, we always talk about patient privacy as being something that's core to the healthcare experience. And this was kind of the ultimate betrayal, if you want to use that word, in terms of publicly um, disclosing that somebody is going through a cancer battle, especially in their final days where usually people just want that comfort and privacy that they are are due in that moment. Yeah. You know, we've talked about celebrities highlighting their their health conditions on this podcast before as sort of raising awareness about them. But sometimes celebrities don't want to have to, you know, talk about their health conditions in a public matter. And, you know, Tim and Stacey Wakefield have every right to want to keep those things private. Um, I did read the New York Post article about this, and apparently Schilling was aware that the Wakefields did not want this stuff shared. Um, and according to the New York Post, he said, quote, this is not a message that Tim has asked anyone to share, and I don't even know if he wants it shared, but as a Christian and as a man of faith, I have seen prayer work, so I'm going to talk about it. So that was uh, Schilling's, uh, I guess, reasoning behind it, which is strange, but... Yeah, it was one of those things that he had even said, I believe in his podcast, or he had said previously that he and Wakefield weren't particularly close, you know, oh, really? as in their life after being teammates. So again, he wasn't asked to do it. They weren't particularly close. It really was somebody being like, I have this information. I know it'll get me a bunch of attention and morals be damned. I'm going to go right. out and put that into the world. Mark, I'm curious your take on the whole matter, which is ultimately very unfortunate. Yeah, and kind of lost amid all the controversy uh, is the fact that, you know, a very good man uh, was lost to, to, to cancer here, unfortunately, uh, which is obviously very tragic. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll confine my comments largely to the issue at hand, but this is not the first time Schilling has shown a certain tone deafness on issues of a sensitive nature. You know, like back in 2015, when he revealed his collection of Nazi memorabilia, he said he did not intend for the collection to offend I can't help what people get offended by. I can't help how people want to interpret things, he said at the time. So uh, revealing Wakefield's health status without his approval, obviously, one sees the same kind of pattern, which is a disregard for people's privacy there. And, you know, larger in a larger sense, what might be offensive. And he just has no uh, filter. So that's my take. This is our TikTok story of the week. We typically talk about crazy health trends happening on the platform, but this week we're going to talk about patient influencers. Um, TikTok has become a platform that regularly births health or patient influencers, creators who document their personal journeys with health issues like bipolar disorder, autoimmune diseases, and more. These influencers gather thousands of followers by discussing their symptoms and treatments they've tried and offering a glimpse into their day-to-day -day lives. And we know that Gen Z and millennials are increasingly turning to these patient influencers for health advice rather than going to the doctor. A recent Hall & Partners study found that nearly 18% of the U.S. population is getting health guidance from influencers. As a result, healthcare marketers want to take advantage of influencers' reach, but as pharma-patient influencer relationships grow, it also creates questions around some of the side effects, like the large volumes of health misinformation spreading on the platforms. But I did speak with a patient influencer last week, Ellen Rudolph, who's hoping to improve health literacy on TikTok rather than contribute to the misinformation. She went viral after posting about her chronic autoimmune condition and has since 
sort of become an autoimmune influencer, if you can call it that. Um, And she told me that it's really important to build trust with her followers and that creators have a responsibility to, quote, do their own research before deciding whether or not to support a specific health trend and that disputing false information can be just as important as spreading truthful information on the platform. And, you know, some of the tips that she offered uh, people on social media was to trust their guts if videos come up seeming off or seeming outlandish. And, you know, if you if you stumble upon content that looks questionable, um, follow your your intuition and um, basically provide this disclaimer that TikTok creators are not a substitute for doctors at the end of the day, even though a lot of people are turning to them as that. Um, And I know, Mark, you've written about um, patient influencers and how they've sort of become in some ways the quote unquote next frontier of DTC pharma advertising. So I wanted to to toss it to you to see how you feel about where that stands right now. Yeah, thanks, Lesha. Um, and, uh, you know, 18%, you know, it's certainly a huge you know, number. Uh, and, you know, it's not surprising given the litany of TikTok health uh, influencer trends that you highlight uh, week in and week out for the magazine and the website. Uh, and, and uh, you know, both of you guys have written about the need for more health literacy, you know, uh, and, and TikTok as, as it pertains to health. Um, the study that I reported on, um, earlier uh, from was from the Journal of Medical Internet Research, uh, which suggested that patient influencers are drawing a line between sharing experiences and advocating for particular therapies. I think that was the area that they were looking, the researcher was looking for. Um, uh, but the author still called for more investigation into the ethical questions surrounding this uh, form of pharma marketing. The bottom line here, she said, and this was in an interview with uh, Science Daily, is that patient influencers act as a form of interactive direct-to-consumer advertising, uh, which I thought was really an interesting way to describe it. But as it pertains to, um, you know, unverified health advice, one of the interesting findings there was that 69% of respondents uh, to, uh, in in that study, which included 26 in-depth interviews with influencers across disease states, uh, said that... um, uh, they worked with for-profit brands and pharma companies, um, and they unanimously agreed that they would not dole out medical advice, but instead advise patients to contact their physician with questions about prescription medicines. Uh, so, and, but that was, you know, I guess when the information that they're talking about sort of crossed over into uh, the medical realm or you know, medication realm. Oftentimes, the trends uh, that we talk about or that you talk about, Lesha, are are less, you know, grounded uh, in. Uh, in science, you know, let alone, you know, crossing over into medication, but I just thought, just thought that was an interesting wrinkle. I think it's really interesting. I, you know, you highlighted that 18% number that just immediately grabbed my attention where it's nearly one in five Americans are going to social media for some sort of health advice. And I think we've all seen it in our day-to-day life where somebody is talking about something related to their health on social media. And you say, I don't know, like it's either dubious or it's too good to be true. And, and you've covered the gamut in terms of your own um, uh, reporting, Lesha, I think it's really interesting some of the insights that Rudolph had brought up in the article and really kind of the, the common sense of it all, where it is really trust your gut, you know, think, not necessarily think for yourself, but don't take everything at face value. I know a lot of the things that you've brought up on the podcast before have been truly take it with a grain of salt. And she was kind of reiterating that message. So I think it was very important to be able to have that conversation. I'm glad that it's in our publication. I'm glad that our audience of medical marketers are able to also understand this dynamic and say, hey, there's obviously a, a base here of young 
um, adults who are using this technology who are on these platforms, but they need to be given the right information too, if they're going to make actionable decisions about their health in a meaningful way. So I'm glad that we had it on here. I'm glad that you're able to to bring it up for the pod and and certainly look forward to whatever comes down the pike in terms of TikTok and social media trends. I know that that's a never ending pipeline for us. Absolutely. And um, before we kick it off back to you, Jack, for the last item, one other data point from that study said 92% of uh, influencers said they shared content so others would not suffer from an information or education void. Uh, so they're trying to fill the void, but uh, the, uh, you know, Lesh's point underscores the need to fill it with, uh, you know, uh, reputable information. <laughs> so uh, what do you got next, Jack? Our final story comes from Tom Hanks, America's dad, who said he has, quote, nothing to do with an AI version of him promoting a dental plan. Hanks posted on Instagram on Sunday that viewers should be wary of a promotional video for a dental plan featuring an AI version of the Oscar winning actor. Hanks didn't disclose the company or organization behind the deep fake and CNN reported that it was unable to independently verify the content of the dental plan ad that Hanks referenced. This development comes as AI continues to capture the public's imagination, albeit with concerns from many sectors, including healthcare and advertising, about how to regulate the technology. Um, I did take a look at the ad. I, you know, maybe it's from being a digital native and having been raised on the internet for 20 something years, but clearly looked like a fake. But I can tell you that there are probably plenty of people out there. They're like, oh, there's Tom Hanks. He's promoting a dental ad. And that's all the research I've done. Kind of going back to what you talked about, Lesh, in terms of, you know, seeing misinformation and being able to identify it as such. Yeah, I, I looked, I tried to search for the uh, the video, but I couldn't find a pop up anywhere. But my initial thought would have been, I probably would have noticed that it was an AI video because uh, based on the AI videos I've seen so far, they're all kind of wonky and a little off looking. And so I feel like, you know, it'd be pretty obvious if someone who is like a digital native, like you mentioned, maybe younger generation will be able to, to notice that. Um, but I imagine that as AI becomes more and more advanced and, you know, videos and images become more and more realistic looking, this will be an increasing problem for healthcare marketing even as well. Yeah, this is not the last time that I imagine we're going to have to discuss this topic. Mark, I wanted to bring you in because I know that we've all interviewed people talking about you know, the prospects of generative AI and this technology and what it could mean for marketing. But this is the very real downside underbelly that is, again, not going away anytime soon. So what does this whole situation mean for our audience? Yeah, I mean, the, this uh, issue with Tom Hanks, I didn't see the ad either. But to me, you know, hearing about it obviously just underscores the importance of uh, proper safety guardrails uh, with AI. When CNN covered the story, you know, they, they mentioned the uh, recent um, actors uh, strike and, and part of the uh, settlements involved um, AI. Uh, and so that was definitely a concern uh, for those in Hollywood, um, you know, in, in terms of their likeness uh, being uh, used in perpetuity on AI uh, and deep fake generators without them getting proper credit. Um, so um, it's, it's being addressed now. Um, but uh, it's, it's an interesting form of, you know, maybe not misinformation, but disinformation, which is the, you know, sort of deliberate spread of, uh, of, uh, of misinformation um, or propaganda. Um, but, um, you know, just I think in our industry, as, as you know, we're just kind of scratching the surface in marketing. Uh, I know some agencies I've heard about are using, um, you know, image AI generated image generators 
uh, for, uh, you know, various uh, creative art projects, you know, just as, you know, to get a, a initial round of ideas going. Uh, but then, you know, the, the, the creative directors and the, the humans uh, with the real expertise expertise come in um, to, uh, you know, verify it and, and uh, check it. And as long as it's used in a way that augments but doesn't replace humans, um, then it's then it's it's okay. Uh, so it's, it's just, um, you know, another um, red flag, cautionary tale, if you will, about the need to to regulate uh, AI as we uh, in, inexorably move you know more deeply into this uh, brave new world. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the MMNM podcast. Jack and Lesha will be covering the health conference in Las Vegas next week, but be sure to listen to our next episode featuring interviews with Ellen Donahue Dalton of Village MD and Brian Edwards of the American College of Surgeons. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.